Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for the rain. Um, our lesson this morning from Noah teaches us that you've used rain as judgment, but you use it for blessing too. And, and we know that this rain you bring greens the grass and it makes, it makes your place beautiful. We thank you for that. We thank you for the time we have to share this morning for the people that you brought here. Uh, everyone that is here is here because you wanted them to be. And Father, whether they realize it or not, I pray that you'll use this time for all of our benefit. Father, bless us and bless your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. We've been in Acts and we're still in Acts. Um, the, the passage that I drew this morning is from Acts 18 through 21. So I'm not going to read all of it because it's quite a bit of text. And um, there's, a lot, there's a lot going on in there. I'll summarize a little bit. And uh, I'm going to focus on a couple of passages. I'll, I'll give you those in a second. The Apostle Paul is one of the most significant and influential intellects in all of history. He really is. His writings have shaped the history of the last 2,000 years. You, you cannot deny that. If you look at history, Paul's significance cannot be understated. Overstated, I should say. Scholars even today are still debating what did Paul mean about such and such. Now, they wouldn't be debating if it didn't matter. We need to know what Paul meant. This is still going on. For all of this intellectual and theological impact, the thing about Paul is he was not just an academic living off in the university in a safe place. Everything he did after his conversion to Christ was to advance the gospel of Jesus. He was single-minded. He was focused. He traveled and he worked with incredible energy and purpose. And I would say that his life was devoted to discipleship, to building up the brothers and the sisters in the church. And today's passage spans a lot, so I'm going to have to try to, to, to derive out a theme here, um, which I will do. But before I, before I read the passage, I want to kind of summarize this, this, what's happening in these chapters. It's describing Paul's third missionary journey. He did, he did three missionary journeys, and then he did two trips after that. He, he made a trip basically as a prisoner from Israel to Rome as a prisoner. And, and we understand that there was a break in his being a prisoner. He was released for a time, and he did a little bit more traveling, but then he was, he was a prisoner again and ended up dying in captivity. So he traveled a lot. Um, this is, his third, this is his third missionary journey. He had traveled these regions before, and we've been talking through that. Um, so what are some of the things that, some of the little stories, the anecdotes that, that come through this book of Acts here. Luke is the author, and Luke likes to tell, tell the story almost as a reporter, as a journalist. These are the facts. This is what happened. This is who was there. This is where it was. This is the sequence. And he, he explains things in a very detailed way. Um, some of the things that he describes are the scene with, with a riot that happens in Ephesus. Because Paul spent about three years on this trip. And most of that time was in Ephesus. And one of the things that happened is as he preached the gospel, people stopped worshiping idols. That's great. Except if your business is selling idols, well, 
That kind of puts a pinch, a pinch on the pocketbook. And there was a riot because these people were so upset with Paul because he was messing up business. Well, the, the riot happened. And, and the unusual thing about that, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but the riot ended very quietly. The town clerk came along and said, guys, if you have a problem with Paul, take it up with the authorities. We'll do due process. And everybody went home. So <laughs> that was the end of the riot. Most riots don't end that way. There was, there was another incident where there was a lot of miracles happening. And, and people saw that, that demons were being driven out in the name of Jesus. And there were imitators that would say, Ooh, I see this name of Jesus, kind of a magic word. And there, there's this story about these people named the sons of Sceva. And they, they learned how to say Jesus. And they, went, they found a guy with, a, with an evil spirit. And they told him to get out in the name of Jesus. And the spirit said, Jesus I know. Paul, I recognize you. I don't know. He commenced to beat them up and strip them naked. They fled out of the house, uh, humiliated, and lucky to be alive, probably. So these are some of the things that happen. We, we hear about Apollos in this passage. Apollos is a really interesting figure from Alexandria in Africa, in Egypt. And uh, he had heard, and he had heard accurately about some of the things about Jesus, and he knew that Jesus was the Messiah, and he was teaching in Greece. And but he didn't know the whole story. He didn't understand about the Holy Spirit. So Paul comes and he meets some of Apollos' uh, students, people that, that have been following Apollos, and found that they'd been baptized, but they didn't understand about the Holy Spirit. And Paul came and, and the Spirit came. And they were, they were filled with the Spirit. Uh, these, these are the kinds of things that happen on Paul's trip. But those aren't the things that I'm going to focus on today. Um, there are some people, the people in this, in this passage, really important people, Luke, the author of the book, Acts, Timothy, who is Paul's spiritual son, Titus, we hear about, uh, Apollos, Philip the Evangelist is an interesting, really interesting person. We'll talk a little bit more about him. Um, but these are some of the things that happen. And I want to read, I want to read two passages, because after all of these things, um, there's a, there's a leave-taking that happens as he heads back to Jerusalem. Because he knows the Spirit has told him, you've got to go back to Jerusalem. And he knows also that going back to Jerusalem means imprisonment. It means capture. And he's not looking forward to it, but he's ready to face it. So he goes back, and there's a leave-taking. I, I want to read you the leave-taking passage as he's leaving Ephesus. And then and there's a passage then when he arrives in Caesarea, basically the port city for Jerusalem, and what happens there. Those are the two, two passages I want to read. So we're going to be in Acts um, uh, 20. Uh, 20, 17 through 38 is the first passage I'm going to read. Hear the word of the Lord. Now from my leaders he sent to Ephesus, called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. 
But I do not account my life of anxiety, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you observers or overseers to care for the church of God for which, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver, gold, apparel, or apparel. You, you yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, it must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the words he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. About one week later, I'm skipping forward just a few verses in Acts 21.8. About one week later, he had left Ephesus, he had sailed, and now he was in Caesarea. Actually, it's probably about two weeks. He's now in Caesarea. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who wears, who owns this belt, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go into Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, he ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got up, we got ready, and went up to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks God. God. We see Paul taking leave of the, of the folks in Ephesus. And those were the leaders of the church there, really. What I see, what I see in these passages, Luke, the author, is telling us a narrative, like a reporter, like I was saying. The story seems to revolve around Paul almost as a main character, at least in this part of Acts. It's a true account. And Luke's not pretending to know what he doesn't know. He's only reporting what he does know. So what we miss, because it's not a novel, what we miss is Paul's thoughts. What does Paul think about all of this? Well, the good thing about it is that during this time, during this trip, Paul wrote four important letters, and we have them. He wrote a letter to the church at Galatia. He wrote two letters to the church at Corinth, and then he wrote one to the Romans. And so we have, we do have Paul's thoughts. We don't have to guess and speculate what he might have been feeling. We know. And we can see, we can see Paul's thoughts here. 
If we look at Galatians, he had recently come through Galatia. What is the theme of Galatians? Don't compromise the gospel with man-made requirements. Only God, only God can save. You can't save yourself. Amen. And that is, is so critical because we have we have these people that were called Judaizers. They were trying to they were trying to lay on extra requirements for people to become a Christian. And Paul was saying, and he preached hard. And Galatians is a bit of a hard book. You can't do it, guys. In fact, if you preach a gospel that is other than what I preached, I condemn you. And he said that in a very strong term. I condemn you. That's a strong book. Keep the gospel pure. Then he speaks to the Corinthians. Completely different tone. It's still stern. It's still a little hard. But, but the Corinthians' problem was completely different. Almost opposite in some ways. They were immature. They were out of control. They, they were embracing sinfulness and allowing it in their church. They were, they were doing foolish things and competing with each other. And they were being, they were being unkind and unwise and immature in, in all these different ways. And he said, no, you've got to stop. You've got to grow up. You can't do this. So we have a stern warning against legalist people. We have a stern warning against these uh, foolish, immature people. And then the last letter he writes is Romans. And, and many people would consider that his, his magnum opus. It, it is a work of great intellect. Probably, uh, probably his greatest work, arguably. And he lays out from the very beginning of the book the logic and, and the story of the gospel. The bad news that is real. That, that we have rebelled against our Creator. And the only reasonable punishment for that is death. And then he lays out that God had a different plan and God wasn't ready to close the books just that way. And he, and he allowed for a redeemer. So he lays out the gospel in the book of Romans in a very intellectual and a very uh, logical way. It's a beautiful book. So I want to I hit some principles today. That, that is kind of uh, maybe the introduction part. So for those of you that are, that are trying to take notes and trying to see some order in what we're talking about, I want to hit about four principles um, from, from what we see in Paul's time here. The first is that discipleship is time-consuming, hands-on, face-to-face work. That's the first one I want to talk through a little bit. Discipleship is, is time-consuming, hands-on, face-to-face work. We also know from looking at Paul that the best discipleship results not only in maturing the disciple, but also it results in genuine love and affection. We see that from the people in Ephesus. The best discipleship not only matures the disciple, but it results in genuine love and affection. And finally, we see Paul, as he's, as he's in Caesarea, to be a good discipler, you must first be a good disciple. We see Paul doing that. To be a good discipler, you must first be a good disciple. And we see with Paul that discipleship means following. That's what the word means in a sense. Discipleship means following. And following Jesus means dying. And Paul embraces that. Those are the principles that I want to walk through a little bit. I'll spend some time on that. First one, discipleship is a time-consuming, hands-on, face-to-face work. We see Paul, we see him traveling, we see him spending three years... And it talks about some of the things that he did. I, I named off some of the incidents that happened. 
But what did Paul do? Well, it's, it, it tells us that Paul, one of the things he did, he, he would usually have a pattern of going to the synagogue first. And he would try to preach to the Jews and say, Jews, you already know the deal. You already know the promise of a Messiah. And I'm here to tell you some good news. The Messiah's come. We actually know who he is. Now we can follow him. So let me tell you, let me tell you about the Messiah. Sometimes Jews would say, wow, thank you, Paul. We're in. And sometimes they would say, out with you, Paul. We reject you. In the case of Ephesus, they let him talk for about three months and then it got violent. He had to go. Um, but when he went, then he went to a forum where they, where they had lecturers and, and guest speakers. And he was able to talk at the, the Hall of Tyrannus for about two years. That's more of a Gentile-oriented place. And, it, and the scripture tells us that he was so effective in his speaking there, and his talking, and his teaching, that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord because of his activity. Now he's dedicated, he's working, he's going over there. But you know what? He's also a tent maker. He's doing a job. And he's making money on the side so that he can eat, so that he doesn't have to take money from the, from the believers there. So he's working. He's working hard. Um, we see that Paul could have, I mean, he was an intellect, no question. He could have set up an office in Antioch. I can just kind of visualize this office. A nice office, comfortable. He's got his laptop. He's got maybe a plant in the corner. It's really, it's really a nice place. But that wasn't Paul's way, right? Paul, Paul traveled. He said, I'm not going to sit in Antioch and send out letters. Think of the letters he could have written from an office in Antioch. We have, we have some of his letters. Think how many we might have. But that was not God's will for him. And what he did instead was he put his life out there. And he wrote the letters that he wrote while he was on the road. While he was much less comfortable. He... Um, the, the words that he uses to describe what he did, I, I really like this. That he traveled all these places and it said he, strength, he was strengthening all the disciples. I can just picture him going, encouraging, rebuking, reminding, you know, just telling, teaching. Um, he traveled, he made friends, sometimes he confronted enemies, always was an example to the people. So if, if discipleship is time-consuming, hands-on, face-to-face work, what, what do we take away from that? What's our, what's our go-do? What's our takeaway? I would ask, well, how much are you willing to give up? Paul gave up everything. This is what he did. This became his life. What are, what are we willing to give up? What are you willing to give up? Where does the work of discipling others fit into your priorities? For Paul, it was it. That was number one. In fact, it was number one through a hundred, I think. I don't even know if he had anything else on his priority list. Are you, are you carving out time? Paul carved out his whole life. Are you taking time with people so that you can lead them? Are you, are you taking time to be led? Because in some places we're disciples, and some places we're disciplers. And even as you do these tasks, if, if you find that you're trying to do that, are you opening your heart so that you can be changed? Now Paul... Paul moved on, and I want to move on to this, this next phase, this next part that I read about the Ephesian elders. And this is, this is fascinating. I love this part because as I, as I first started learning more about Paul and, and reading, reading what Paul wrote, 
my first my first response was to just respect the intellect and, and, and embrace kind of the, the academic side of things, Paul's logic and, and Paul's strength of argument. But, but this is one of my favorite passages about Paul because it's, it's emotional. And he, he called for the Ephesian elders to come to him because he had a, he had a schedule to keep, he had to get out of town. So he, he kind of put them at the disadvantage in a way of... Uh, uh, he asked them to do a favor, come to him instead of him coming to them. But they came immediately. They came immediately. And what did he do? He kind of gave a speech. It reminds me of Moses, kind of, uh, in his, the speech he gave in Deuteronomy. He gave a, a long, book-long sermon to the people of Israel. And Paul isn't speaking long, but he's speaking in, in a very uh, final way. He reminds them of his service. He reminds them of the preaching that he's done with them, the teaching. He reminds them how consistent he's been. All the things that he shared. He reminds them, he reminds them too of his integrity and his purpose. Because he, he, he brings up, hey, I didn't take your money, guys. I didn't take your money. That's not why I was here. I earned my own money. In fact, I helped provide for others. <coughs> In another letter to Timothy, <clears throat> he does affirm that the work of preaching and leading the church is worth actual money. But he chose to not take the money so that there could be no question about his intention. But then it's the elders of that church that he had brought together. So he reminded them very carefully of their duty to watch over Jesus' church. And one of the first things he said is the price that was paid. These people, the church, was purchased by the blood of Jesus. So he's telling them, guys, you've been given a duty. But you didn't pay for this. Somebody else did. And that's who you work for. No matter how much we might work or labor, it's still Jesus' church. Jesus' blood bought it, not our sweat. And we can work as hard as we want. It still belongs to Him. We belong to Him. And this is an assignment, a delegation, and it must be temporary because we're mortal. You know, we, we can work hard. We can do right. But at some point, that ends. And, and we have to... We have to move on. It's, but Jesus, Jesus owns it forever. But Paul warned them that wolves would come because he knew. He knew that there would be threats to the church. False teachers, uh, people, people looking out for themselves. And he even warned them that some of the threats could be internal to the church. That there would be people inside the church that would threaten. And he told them and reminded them, you're, you're not going to see me anymore. I'm, I'm going to be gone. So you guys, you guys need to carry this. And then what happened is amazing. They, they all prayed together. But then it says, weeping, embracing, kissing. This is the, the old world style kiss. The, you know, the, the Italian kind. But I just see so much emotion there, right? That the people absolutely love Paul. They, they just couldn't stand seeing him go, and he loved them. So this this man that we might be tempted to think of as cold and intellectual was far from him. He was warm. And he loved those people, and they loved him. And the principle there is that the best discipleship results not only in maturing of the disciple, which is a good goal, and that's a good thing, but it results in genuine love and affection. And that's that those things can go together. And I think of. Uh, I know I, I do this all the time. I apologize in advance if you get bored by sports analogies. 
But I see so many things about this, and I see coaches, right? Coaches are a great example sometimes. But if you know anything about football, there's a couple of coaches that are, that are in recent memory that kind of, to me, explain two different sides of this coin. You've got, you've got Bill Belichick, who's got Super Bowl rings, probably can't even fit on one hand. I'm not sure how many he's got now. And he's a great coach. He, he controls that team. He, he runs that team. They respond. Their, their motto is, do your job. That's it. Kind of cold, isn't it? Do your job. That's, that's, how, that's how they're coached. But it works. And they win. It's great. But you never see anyone come out of that program and say, man, he was great to work for. I love that guy. And you never hear that. You never hear it. On the other hand, you got a guy like Tony Dungy from the Colts. Now, he's retired now. And he's got one Super Bowl ring. But his guys love him. Because he saw them as men, as people. He loved them and he poured into them. He coached them, he taught them, and I have no doubt he yelled at them from time to time. But because I can't imagine a football coach never yelling at them. Maybe they do, but but they love him. They love him because he loved them, right? And that's that's what I see with Paul. Is that yeah, he was harsh sometimes. He knew he knew when people were doing wrong. He was willing to bring correction, but there was a genuine there was a genuine love. And this can only be in response to recognizing Paul. Paul could love that way because he knew he'd been loved. He, he knew that he'd been loved in a way that he didn't deserve. If you recall Paul's history, he was killing Christians. Or supporting the killing of Christians. He was rounding them up. But then he'd been forgiven. And the only reasonable thing, the only reasonable response to that is now I, I got it. That love needs to overflow for me. And that's, that's exactly what happened with Paul. The love did overflow. Not to the detriment of truth, but the love was there. So then, um, let me ask, let me talk about Paul as he goes to Caesarea at the, at the close of his journey. He, uh, this is a really interesting passage. His goal all along in this last trip had been to get back to Jerusalem because he wanted to be there for Pentecost. But he shows up in Caesarea. He goes to the house of Philip, the evangelist. And um, if you remember, Philip shows up a few different places. And I think it's easy to kind of lose track. This is the same Philip. And Philip was one of the seven deacons. So we, we talked about Stephen a few weeks ago, selected as a deacon. And then the next chapter, he preaches to the Sanhedrin and gets stoned for that, for that sermon. Well, this, this Philip, he's one of the seven with Stephen. And after the stoning and the persecution happens, the scripture tells us that Philip went down to Samaria and preached and did miracles. It's amazing. This is, this is Philip, the deacon. And then if you remember, he met the Ethiopian eunuch on the road. And the eunuch was reading scripture and was like, oh man, what is this? Can you explain it? And yes, actually I can. And he baptized that Ethiopian eunuch on the road to Gaza, heading back to Africa, and where did, where did he go? Ethiopia. Ethiopia became a cradle of Christianity in the very early church. So this Philip is, is not an insignificant person. Lives in Caesarea. Now to add a whole new fun wrinkle to it, Philip has four unmarried daughters and they prophesy. Now what do we do with that, Baptists? I don't know. I'll leave that as, as an exercise for the students. Um, 
And we don't have time to get into that. But that's a really interesting thing. Four daughters of this guy are prophesied. I can, I can just picture this house. Paul and Luke and all these guys going into this house. Philip's here. Four daughters prophesying. And then a guy comes down out of the hills. Agabus, the prophet. And he, he takes Paul's belt. And he takes it off Paul. Like, can you just imagine this scene? How dramatic this is? Can you imagine taking someone's belt? It's, it's, it's awkward at least, right? So he took Paul's belt off. He tied up his own hands and his own feet as a physical illustration of what he was going to prophesy. And he said, this is what's going to happen to the person who owns this belt. They're going to be tied up. When he goes to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen. Now, he did it as a warning. Now, he was, it, the Scripture tells us he was prophesying. He was speaking truth from God. But he was doing it as a warning. Because they didn't want Paul to go. Please, Paul, don't go. The Spirit has told you what's going to happen. We're telling you what's going to happen. Everybody knows what's going to happen. Don't go. And what does Paul say? What does Paul say? Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? You're just making art. This path is set. It's settled. It's not open to discussion. I'm going. And in this, this is where I see the principle that to be a good discipler, you first must be a good disciple. Paul is following. Now, he's not leading here. He's following. He's following Jesus. When we follow Jesus, it means dying. In Paul's case, it meant physically, actually, literally dying. But no matter what, if we follow Jesus, there's a death. Because we have to give up ourselves. We have to give up our own will and our own way. And, and embrace His will and His way. Paul knew that if he went, that, that imprisonment was for certain because the Spirit had told him. And death was a very real possibility. And it's interesting to me that Paul said, I'm, I'm ready to die in Jerusalem if I need to. Well, he didn't die in Jerusalem. So at that point, he was speculating. This wasn't, he didn't have that final word. He didn't know what was going to happen. He thought it might happen that he might die in Jerusalem. But that part wasn't prophecy. That was just him saying, I'm ready if I need to. But he's saying, he, he could have said, look at the work I'm doing. Look at how I'm building the church. I'm far too important to take a risk on going to Jerusalem. But he didn't say that. He said, no. Spirit told me to go, I go. That's what has to happen. His life was not his own and he knew it. He was bought with Christ. But he knew that he couldn't only tell people what to do. He had to show them. Discipleship means following. Following Jesus means dying. And he did end up dying in Rome. So to conclude, um, and this is one of the letters he wrote on this, on this journey, but in his first letter to the church at Corinth, he said these words in there so bold to me as a, as a leader in the church. These words seem impossibly bold. But he said, follow me as I follow Christ. And if you think about the burden that he's placing on himself by saying that, to say, he's saying, watch me, examine me, and I commit to you to do, to do things that you can emulate profitably and not do things that you can't. 
what a burden. And what an invitation for scrutiny. But this is how each of us should be thinking. And clearly, those of us who are in leadership, but, but all of us have opportunity in leadership at some level, even if it's not a named position. And for Paul, every word that he wrote, every place that he went, every conversation he had was to that end. When he went to synagogue, he went to convince his people that the Messiah had come. That's why he went. When he went to the Hall of Tyrannus, he went to tell the Gentiles that the very God of creation that they didn't understand had made a way for them to come to him. When he made tents, it was to provide money to sustain his work. When he spoke to church leaders, it was to encourage them in faithfulness and to warn them about possible pitfalls and dangers to the church. Paul called people to follow him as he followed Christ. Paul was passionate and single-minded about defending this gospel of Jesus. This was, this was the thing that he, he would take to the mat. He would fight for the gospel. What is this gospel that he was so passionate about? Well, you should read Romans because he, he explains it better than I ever could. But I can summarize. We've been created by a perfect God. But we have rebelled because of our pride, because we're, we're rebels. And the only reasonable punishment for a rebel against the Creator, the only reasonable thing to do is the opposite of creation. Destruct. Destruction, destroying, and death. That's reasonable. Guys, you rebel against your Creator, what is the reasonable punishment? Get uncreated. So Paul lays that case out in Romans. Right? That's the bad news. And it's real. But the thing that Paul understood and that he was so passionate about is that that's not the end of the story. There's good news. In fact, the word gospel means good news. Right? And the good news is this. That even though God demands justice, God was willing to pay the price himself. And so he sent Jesus to take that punishment for us. That's, that's the gospel that Paul defended in a nutshell.